Murray Shanahan is a professor of cognitive robotics at Imperial College London and a senior research scientist at DeepMind. He graduated from Imperial College with a first in computer science in 1984 and obtained his PhD from King's College in Cambridge in 1988. He's since worked in the fields of artificial intelligence, robotics, and cognitive science. He's published books such as Embodiment and the Inner Life and The Technological Singularity. His book Embodiment and the Inner Life was a significant influence on the film Ex Machina, for which he was a scientific advisor. Now, um, Professor Shanahan is a renowned researcher on sophisticated cognition and its implications for artificial intelligence. His work focuses on agents that are coupled to complex environments through sensory motor loops, such as robots and animals. He's also particularly interested in the relationship between cognition and consciousness and has developed a strong understanding of the biological brain and cognitive architectures more generally. In addition, Professor Shanahan is interested in the dynamics of the brain, including metastability, dynamical complexity and criticality, as well as the application of this understanding to machine learning. He's also fascinated by the concept of global workspace theory, as proposed by Bernard Bars. Uh, we'll be talking about that on the show today, which is based on a cognitive architecture comprising a set of parallel specialist processes and a global workspace. Professor Shanahan is committed to understanding the long-term implications of artificial intelligence, both its potential and its risks. His research has been published extensively, and he's a member of the External Advisory Board for the Cambridge Centre of the Study of Existential Risk, and also on the editorial boards of Connection Science and Neuroscience of Consciousness. Conscious Exotica. Professor Shanahan wrote an article called Conscious Exotica in 2016, where he invited us to explore the space of possible minds, a concept first proposed by philosopher Aaron Sloman in 1984. Now, this space is comprised of all the different forms of minds which could exist, from those of other animals, such as chimpanzees, to those of life forms that could have evolved elsewhere in the universe, and indeed, those of artificial intelligences. Now, in order to describe the structure of this space, Shanahan proposes two dimensions, the capacity for consciousness and human likeness of the behavior. According to Shanahan, the space of possible minds must include forms of consciousness that are so alien that we wouldn't even recognize them. He rejects the dualistic idea that there's an impenetrable realm of the subjective experience. Remember we were talking about Nagel's bat on the, um, uh, the Chalmers show. Uh, insisting instead that nothing is hidden, metaphorically speaking, citing Wittgenstein actually. Now uh, Shanahan argues that while no artifacts exist today, which has anything even approaching human-like intelligence, the potential for variation in artificial intelligences far outstrips the potential for variation in naturally evolved intelligence. This means that the majority of the space of possible minds may be occupied by non-natural variants, such as the conscious exotica of which Shanahan speaks. Now, ultimately, Shanahan's exploration of the space of possible minds invites us to consider the possibility for human-like minds, but also for those that are radically different and inscrutable. He concludes that, although we may never understand these alien forms of consciousness, we can still recognize them as part of the same reality as our own. So, Professor Shanahan has just dropped a brand new paper called Talking About Large Language Models, in which he discusses the capabilities and limitations 
of large language models. Now, in order to properly comprehend the capacities and boundaries of these models, we must first grasp the relationship between humans and these systems. Humans have evolved to survive in a common world and have cultivated a mutual understanding reflected in their ability to converse about convictions and other mental states. Conversely, AI systems lack this shared comprehension, so attributing beliefs to them should be done circumspectly. Now, prompt engineering is something that we've all become very familiar with. We've discussed it a lot on this show recently, and it's almost become a fact of the matter when it comes to these large language models. It involves exploiting prompt prefixes to adjust the language models to diverse tasks without needing any supplementary training, allowing for more effective communication between humans and machines. Nevertheless, lacking a more profound understanding of the system and its relationship to the external world, it's difficult to be certain whether the arguments produced by a large language model are genuine reasoning or simply mimicry. Large language models can be integrated into a variety of embodied systems even, such as uh, robots or virtual avatars. However, this doesn't necessarily mean that these systems possess completely human-like language abilities. Even though the robot in the Seikan system is physically embodied and interacts with the real world, its language is still learned and used in a dramatically different manner than humans. So in summary, although Professor Shanahan concludes that large language models are formidable and versatile, they're fundamentally unlike humans, and we must be wary of ascribing human-like characteristics to these systems. We must find a way to communicate the nature of these systems without resorting to simple terms. This may necessitate an extended period of interaction and experimentation with the technology, but it's a fundamental step if we are to accurately portray the capabilities and limitations of large language models. So, anyway, without any further delay, I give you Professor Murray Shanahan. Professor Shanahan, it's an absolute honour to have you on MLST. Um, tell me a little bit about your background. My background? Well, I've been interested in artificial intelligence for as long as I can remember, since I was, since I was a child, really, and I was very much drawn to it by science fiction, by science fiction movies and, and, and books. Um, and then uh, I studied computer science right from when I was a, a teenager and got very much drawn into programming, was fascinated by programming. Um, uh, I, I really did my 10,000 hours of you know, programming uh, experience when I was quite, quite young. Then I went on to do computer science at Imperial College uh, London, uh, that was my degree. Uh, and then still fascinated by artificial intelligence, I went on to, uh, to Cambridge um, and did my PhD in AI in, uh, in Cambridge, very much in the symbolic school then. Um, uh, and then I had a long affiliation with Imperial College, did my postdoc there and uh, still in symbolic AI. And then uh, at some point I became a bit disillusioned with symbolic AI and I kind of segued into um, studying the brain, which was the, you know, the, the obvious example of, of actual general intelligence that we, that we have. Um, and uh, I think I, you know, it was a good 10 years on, on an excursion into neuroscience and computational neuroscience and that kind of thing. Uh, and, then, um, uh, and then deep learning and deep reinforcement learning happened in the early 2010s and AI started to get interesting again. Mm. And I, I got very much back into, uh, back into it uh, uh, that way. And I was particularly you know, impressed by DeepMind's DQN you know, the mm. system that learned mm. to play Atari games from scratch. And I thought that was a fantastic step forward. And I really kind of 
you know, went back into, uh, went back to my roots and uh, back to AI at that point. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about DQN when we speak about your article on, on consciousness. But um, so having such a, a diverse, um, you know, set of, of experiences in, in adjacent fields, how have they influenced each other? Yeah, well, um, I, and one thing I didn't mention is that I've also had a long-standing interest in philosophy, and, mm. and, I, and I, I very often think that what I am is a sort of weird kind of philosopher, really, and, and philosophical questions have, have had a great attraction for me. So I think there's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of three-way interrelationship between uh, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and the other cognitive sciences, um, and, and, and philosophy. And I think they all kind of mutually inform each other, uh, really. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. So um, you wrote a book called Embodiment and the Inner Life. What motivated you to write that book? Yeah. So, so at that point, so that book was published in uh, 2010. And um, it was the culmination of, of, uh, of, a, of a sort of long excursion into thinking about consciousness and about brains, um, which you know, took place after I had moved away from symbolic AI, really. So I was thinking about uh, about the biological brain. In the back of my mind, I'd always been fascinated by these philosophical questions about consciousness. Uh, and then um, uh, I went a bit kind of crazy and started, you know, uh, thinking about these things seriously. It became kind of my day job to think about neuroscience and about consciousness. And, uh, and around about that time, the science of consciousness was taking off as a serious you know, as a serious academic discipline with, with proper experimental paradigms. So that was really fascinating. Um, and I got to know Bernie Bars. Bernie Bars is um, uh, the person who originated global workspace theory, mm. global workspace theory being one of the leading contenders for a scientific theory of consciousness. Um, and I was very drawn to global workspace theory, and partly because it was a computational sort of theory. It, 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 it drew very heavily on uh, computer science um, uh, and computer architectures. There was a computer architecture at the center of the, of the theory. So, uh, so, so, so this kind of collection of, of, of interests, along with my philosophical interests, sort of all came together. And I wanted to put them all into a, into a book where I express my kind of ideas about, first of all, from the philosophical side, very heavy influence of Wittgenstein about how we address these problems at all. Um, uh, then lots of global workspace theory and a certain kind of global workspace architecture, how that might be realized in the brain, drawing also on the work of Stanislas Dehen, who mm. who was working on what he called the global neuronal workspace uh, idea, and putting all these things together into you know into one uh, big book. Amazing. Well, well, we'll speak a lot about Wittgenstein when we speak about the, the language model paper and, and your consciousness paper, but, but two things that did um, uh, trigger or, or prick my ears up, um, computationalism, uh, which is quite interesting, because some, some folks in, in the cognitive science arena, especially with the four E's, um, like, um, like examples to escape from computationalism. Mm. And we did a, a show on Searle's Chinese room argument the, the other day. He's probably, probably one of the most known um, people who, who do... Um, issue computationalism. So, so what, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, actually, so, so in, in when I was talking about global workspace theory, I mentioned that it, <clears throat> it sort of um, comes out of a kind of computational architecture. Mm. But in fact, where, where I took it uh, was very much moving away from that, uh, that original presentation, which drew heavily on a, on a, on a kind of, quite, a, quite an old fashioned architectural perspective, sort of boxes mm. and how they communicate with each other and so on. 
Um, and I was much more interested in taking it in a direction which is very much more connectionist and mm -hmm. um, uh, and drawing much more heavily on the on the underlying biology and, and neuroscience, which in fact is also a direction that Bernie Barnes himself, you know, had moved in because the, the book that originally put forward his theory was from 1988. So it's mm. a, uh, you know that was the the predominant way of thinking at the time was this very computational cognitivist perspective. Yeah. Um, so by 2010, when my book was published, uh, you know, I, I, I was very much, um, much more interested in a kind of more connectionist perspective on things. And um, so that's the way that it's portrayed and uh, uh, in the book, the theory. Fascinating. Because yeah. in this arena, some people cite Penrose and, um, you know, the, or, or the need for hypercomputation um, because, you know, people talk about the church Turing hypothesis and this idea that the universe could be made of information, which is quite interesting. But um, do, do you do you believe that the world that we live in could be computationally represented and, and computed? Um, well, I'm not sure that I have a belief on that particular one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, I, I mean, Penrose's ideas about consciousness, of course, draw heavily on on quantum mechanics, and he mm. thinks that. Quantum effects, are, you know, are, are important for, for for consciousness. But I, I mean, that's very much a minority, a tiny minority view within mm. the people who study consciousness from a scientific standpoint. And um, and uh, so I, I don't really subscribe to that point of view. I have to say. Well, I mean, coming at it from a slightly different angle, we we spoke to Noam Chomsky recently, and I've just done some content on Nagel's bat. A couple mm. of rationalists, and right. their, their their big argument is about the subject of experience and um, the limits of our um, cognitive horizon and yeah. you know the, the inability really for us to reduce things into a comprehensible framework of understanding. So yeah, how, yeah. how would you bring that in? Yeah, well, gosh, I mean, yeah, well, we've launched right into some really big, difficult topics here, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so, um, so in my so in my book uh, embodiment in the inner life which uh, you know at, at the time i thought i'd really kind of like wrapped up the problem of consciousness you know <laughs> and uh, um but but one of the big sort of outstanding uh, things for me uh, in in that in one of the outstanding questions that i had not really answered i felt in in, in that book is very much related to 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 nagel's question about uh, about bats you know what mm -hmm. is it like to be a bat so um and it's to do with the idea that that there's a sort of intuitive idea that that maybe there can be you know very exotic entities, very exotic uh, creatures who are completely unlike us, and mm. yet somehow there's some kind of consciousness there that we could barely grasp its nature. And and this is a you know it's it's a sort of natural intuitive thought, and especially when we look at other animals like bats, and especially if we look at an animal that's a bit different from us, then we you know we get hints that there's that there's some someone at home, as it were, and yeah. and that there's consciousness there. We, I think, you know, we we, I'm sure all of us believe that cats and dogs, you know, and uh, and many other animals are are, are conscious and are capable of suffering and 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 you know have an awareness of the world that's like our awareness and are aware of us and each mm -hmm. other and and so that's I you know I think that's uh, I, I mean I take that as almost axiomatic that's just the way we treat those, those those creatures but then when we think about something like a bat and it's very different from us so we you know the natural thing thought is that maybe maybe what it's like is very very different from what it's like for us and it's a natural thought to express hmm. um, and um, and of course uh, you know Nagel takes that thought um, uh, 
to suggest that there are uh, that there's something that is uh, um, in, inaccessible to us, yeah. which is you know what is it like to be a bat is something we can never know, and this is very un Wittgensteinian thought, and I'm very much uh, uh, you know I'm very uh, attracted to to, to Wittgenstein's um, philosophy, mm -hmm. and but but it's also a very natural thought that you know so, so it's a very un Wittgensteinian thought because Wittgenstein says for example you know nothing. Nothing is hidden. So he's mm -hmm. very, you know, and, and the whole private language remarks are all about sort of saying, well, this 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 intuition that we have that there's this private realm of experience is actually just we're just it's just it's just a philosophical trick of the mind to think that this this sort of peculiar metaphysical realm exists of inaccessible subjective experience in in in, in others. Yes, and and that's the that's his whole thrust of his philosophy or or, or that you know that aspect of it is to try and undermine that. So these two things are intention, right? So there's this natural thought that that bats, you know, it must be like something to be a bat, but how, what is it like and how could we ever know? And then there's the Wittgensteinian thought, which mm. is actually very difficult to kind of really embrace, but but it, it, but it's that there's a sense in which nothing is really metaphysically hidden. Mm. It's only hidden, could be hidden empirically because maybe we don't know enough, maybe we haven't hung around with bats often enough, or maybe we haven't examined their brains, or maybe, but that's all empirical, right? So there's nothing metaphysically hidden, whereas Nagel's point is that there's something that's deeply, profoundly, philosophically, metaphysically hidden, which is the subjective. Now we can extend that, shall I carry on? So, Please, yeah. um, so I'm rambling now. So, so we can now we can extend that thought about bats. Now, you know, especially from the perspective of the sort of thing that I'm interested in, to well, not just bats, but what about the whole space of possible minds? To use Aaron Sloman's very evocative phrase, mm -hmm. what about you know extraterrestrials who are going to be, you know, who surely there are, there is extraterrestrial intelligence out there, and it's going to mm -hmm. be very, very, very different to us. So, and and then what about the things that we build? Maybe we can build. Uh, things, you know, uh, an, an artificial intelligence of the future, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, we can build something that is also conscious. It's the kind of thing that's depicted in science fiction all the time. In science fiction, it's often depicted as very human-like, but there's no reason why it should be human-like at all. And so we can imagine these very, very exotic entities. And then the question is even bigger, you know, there could be something that we we won't even be able to recognize that there was even the possibility of consciousness, but maybe it's buried there inside this complex thing somehow. So that's the yeah. that that was the kind of question that, that that fascinated me, and I wrote this paper called Conscious Exotica, which is all about trying to mm -hmm. trying to make that Wittgensteinian perspective encompass this possibility as well. Um, yeah, yeah, and and maybe we should talk about that before the language um, uh, paper, just because it's it's what we're talking about we've now. Got but there, yeah. but, but th there's a, a a few things you said there which were really interesting. So you know when when um, Chomsky talks about ghosts in the machine and he, he goes back to Galileo and, and Descartes and actually it was Descartes who you know introduced this kind of mind-body dualism and mm. um, you know which was um, kind of a move away from the previous desire to have a mechanistic understanding of the world that we live in. Mm. Humans want to understand and um, actually so many things in the world eludes our understanding mm. and then that brings us on to um, uh, David Chalmers coined that the hard problem of consciousness, which mm. I, I, I suppose is, is an extension of the mind-body mm. problem. And um, it's, as you were saying, this little bit extra, right? So we think about, and, and I agree with Chalmers that intelligence and consciousness are likely entangled or would, would co-occur together. But he always said that there, there's function, dynamics and behavior. And then there's that little subjective thing on the top. And, and for Chalmers, consciousness, it's almost like 
what's the cash value of it? He just thinks it's just something on top. It's not really requisite for anything else. Mm. And I believe it might be requisite for intentionality mm. and, mm. and and agency, as, as Searle did. But mm. what's your take? Well, it's interesting because the, the whole way that you put that and the whole way that people often talk about this thing is you, you speak about consciousness. Like there's this thing which, uh, you know, there's this singular thing which maybe it's needed, maybe it isn't, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But I think that that whole way of of talking is is uh, which is which is natural for us in many everyday situations. But when it comes to this kind of conversation, I think that whole way of talking is maybe not quite right because mm. we're, we're 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 thinking of consciousness as this you know we're reifying it, turning it into this thing. Whereas I think maybe we have, at that point we have to take a step back and we have to say, well, when we talk about uh, when we we use that word conscious or consciousness, so we use it in all kinds of different ways in different contexts. Mm. And so when we talk about you know, we, we might talk about it uh, uh, in the context of an animal. We, we might say, well, this, this, the animal, you know, this, this dog is aware of its environment. So, the way, you know, this dog can see the, uh, the, the, the bowl in front of it. It can see me, it can see the door, it can see the trees, it can see the squirrel, you know, and, and, and it can smell. <laughs> More likely to smell all of these things as well. So, 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 so we use consciousness, you know, we talk about consciousness in that, that, that sense. Mm-hmm. And we also talk about our self-consciousness, you know, we talk about the fact that we're, you know, we're aware of our own thoughts and and we, we talk about our inner life and, and, mm. and we use consciousness to to encompass that as well. We uh, we often use consciousness in the context in science scientifically of a, of a distinction between conscious and unconscious processes. And mm-hmm. that's a very interesting distinction because when uh, we're consciously aware of a stimulus as humans then a whole lot of things come together our, our, our we're able to kind of like deal with novelty better we're able to mm-hmm. report it we're able to remember things better so so whereas when we perhaps uh, are unconsciously or, or there's a kind of unconscious processing of a stimulus then we still can respond to it behaviorally but mm. um, and it can have cueing effects and so on but it doesn't have all those other things so this and and that's kind of there's a kind of integrative um, function for consciousness there, and then on top of all of that, there is um, uh, the capacity for suffering and joy that comes with. So, so often there's a there's uh, there's valence to consciousness, you know. There's, yes. there's, there's the, and so that's another thing. So all of these things they come as a package in humans. But when we speak about edge cases, mm. then all then then they these things come apart, and we need to speak about them separately. I think. Fascinating. Well, I mean, there, there are two um, uh, kind of minor digressions there. I mean, you were talking about these planes of consciousness, which is also very interesting. And maybe we could get into the um, integrated information uh, theory or the global workspace theory, just just for the for the audience, just to give them some context. Yeah, sure. Uh, or do you want me to say a few words about? Uh, oh, about oh, please. Them? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So there's so there are a number of kind of candidates for um, for a scientific theory of, of consciousness. Uh, and you just mentioned two of the leading ones, which are global workspace theory and integrated information uh, theory. Um, and so global workspace theory, so that's that's Bernie Barnes's, uh, was originated by Bernie Barnes and has been developed by Stanislas Dehen and colleagues. So the idea there is it's, it does rest on this sort of architectural idea, which is that, um, uh, which is that we think of of the brain, the biological brain, as comprising you know a very large number of parallel processes. This is kind of a natural way to think of the brain: mm-hmm. a large number of parallel processes. And it and the global workspace theory posits a particular way in which these these processes interact and communicate with each other, and that is via this global workspace. And 
the idea there is that um, is that there are sort of two modes of processing that, that, that go on. So in one mode of processing, um, the these parallel processes just do their, their own thing independently. And in the other mode of processing, they are um, uh, working via this global workspace theory. So the idea is that they... Uh, you might think of them as as you know depositing messages, if you like, in this global workspace, which are then broadcast out to all of the other processes. So it's, mm. so it's so there's this kind of. But I think thinking of it in terms of messages is not quite the right way of thinking of it. It's better to think in terms of kind of signalling and information and so on. But that's a sort of natural way to think of it. But so the so these so in in that mode, the, these processes are uh, uh, sort of disseminating their influence to all the other processes. And that's the global kind of broadcast um, aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And that's when consciousness, uh, well, that's when information processing is conscious, according to global workspace theory, yeah. as opposed to when it's all just local and the processes are doing their own thing. That's that's not, that, that processing is not conscious. So there's mm -hmm. a, so, so it's about teasing out this distinction between conscious information processing and unconscious information processing. Mm -hmm. Now, all of those terms, by the way, are deeply philosophically problematic and to go in, you know, you have, you, to, to sort of do it properly, you have to kind of unpack them all in very carefully. And that's what my book try, try, tries to do. But so essentially it's about, it, so the, the essential idea, though, is to do with broadcast and dissemination of information throughout the brain and going from like local processes and have them having global influence. And that's what consciousness is all about, according to global mm -hmm. workspace theory. Mm -hmm. Okay, so integrated information theory so I think so. Integrated information theory, which is Giulio Tononi's uh, 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 theory, um, which Giulio Tononi uh, thinks is, is is kind of kind of incompatible in some ways with uh, with global workspace theory. But I don't think that's that's true. I think I think that there's a lot of um, synergy between the two theories. In fact, um, uh, but but that's because they so they come um, uh, with so, so, so info, integrated information theory has sort of two aspects to it. So, so according to Giulio Tononi, he really is trying to pin down a property um, uh, which is almost like a physical property which is identical with consciousness. So you can actually mm -hmm. speak about the amount of consciousness in any system that you that, that you look at, phi, it's, it's, it's phi. So the phi is a number, how, it's actually a number of how much consciousness is present in the system, like, uh, like part of your brain or your whole brain or you as a person, or a flock of bats, or whatever. So you can, or, or a toaster. You know, so you can give a number to how much consciousness there is there, is there according to his theory, mm -hmm. and it's a mathematical theory based on Shannon's information theory, and it's but it and but it's all about um, trying to see how much information is processed by the individual parts of the system mm -hmm. versus how much information is processed by all of the parts put together mm -hmm. and it's it's and it's to do with how much the second thing you know exceeds the first thing and and in a sense and that is how much consciousness there is there mm. and um and and in a way it, it it actually has some synergies if you as long as you don't think that it's me necessarily measuring uh you know a, this property of the of the universe which you can put a number on but it has some synergies with global workspace theory because they're they're both distinguishing between global holistic things versus local uh, things and the and the consciousness is in the kind of global holistic processing uh, versus the local uh, you know local processing in both those theories so there's a kind of you know there's some intuitions that they have in common i think 
Interesting. And um, it, it also reminds me a little bit, a little bit about what Chalmers um, speaks about. So he, he, he thinks that it strongly emerges from certain types of information processing and yeah. um, the, the, the processing must represent causal structures as well. So it can't, it's, it's not an appeal to panpsychism per se. Um, right. Although with, with all of the, the things that you've just spoken about, um, would they work in another universe? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is it just the um, the physical and the information processing or in a different universe might it not emerge in the same way? Yeah, which depends what you mean by a different universe, I guess. What do you mean by a different universe? Well, if the laws of nature were different. Yeah, okay, so if the laws of physics were yeah. uh, were, were different. Um, well, I guess my, I guess I... I dislike isms. I'm an, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an anti-ismist, or rather, I'd say I'm not an ismist. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but if I were to, I, but I do sort of subscribe broadly to functionalism, I suppose. So I, I guess, yeah. uh, I guess I. But what do I mean by that? I mean, what I mean is, I mean, I, I really dislike saying that I subscribe to these to these isms. So what I really mean by that is that. Um, uh, is that I imagine that uh, a system that is organized in a particular way functionally in terms mm -hmm. of its information processing, and if that system is, in, is embodied in the broadest sense uh, and, you know, and meets lots of other prerequisites, then it's likely to behave in a way where I'm going to naturally use the word conscious to describe it perhaps, and where I'm going to treat it uh, like a fellow conscious creature. So, um, so, so it's so you know. Ultimately, it's I think it's about the kind of organisation you need to give rise to the behaviour you need to talk about thing the thing in a certain way. My question to that, because I, I posed this question to Chalmers last week, because he, he's also a functionalist, and and I I agree with the degree of functionalism describing intelligence, but less so with with consciousness. You know, there's not a Turing test for consciousness, for example. But mm. but the the thing is with functionalism, I we're at risk of doing what you said people do with large language models, which is anthropomorphizing them, because these functions yeah. are intelligible to us. And then our conception of intelligence becomes somewhat observer-relative. Mm -hmm. um, yes, do I... I mean, what are observer-relative? So... Um, As in, I you, you understand these functions, so it's conscious to you, but not to someone else. Uh, well, um, so, so, so in all of these cases, um, I mean, I think it's about the, the words that we use in our language to talk about the things. So the, the, so, so if there's someone else is someone just like us, right, then, then we have to, and, and if we want to use the words in different ways, so, so the, the large language models are a great case in point, right? So, mm. so suddenly we're arriving at, at, at a point where somebody can describe something as conscious um, and others can say that's rubbish. You know, it's not that's not true at all. And so we so we've we, we've arrived at a point where these philosophically problematic words, which uh, which we use in in ordinary life quite quite harmlessly, and we all you know we all uh, are in agreement about how we use the word. Like so if somebody says, oh, you know, Fred has drank so much last night he passed out. He was completely unconscious. You know, and we and or if an anaesthetist says, yes, they you know the patient is now unconscious. They can't feel feel pain um uh, or if you say oh um you know i i, I just wasn't aware I, I didn't see the uh the, the cyclist and you know that's why i i hit them you know i'm really it's, it's tragic but i just didn't see them and mm. then uh, and we so you know so you're, you're saying i wasn't aware of it so it, it didn't influence my action 
So there we're using the terms uh, in ways that we all understand. But now we're getting to a point where suddenly these words or these concepts are being used. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a way. We don't have agreement about how to use these words, right? Because yes. it's there are these exotic edge cases. Yes. So then the question I think that you you're getting it is you know is is there a fact of the matter there, right? Mm. And um, so I'm very tempted to say the first thing I'm tempted to say is that. I don't think that perhaps is a fact of the matter, or certainly I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, uh, speak as if there is a, a fact of the matter, but rather, um, I think we need to arrive at a new consensus about how we use these words. So that might mean that we extend the words, we break them apart, like I was suggesting earlier. Maybe we mm -hmm. need to separate out uh, awareness of the world from self-awareness, from integration, cognitive integration, from the capacity for suffering, because mm -hmm. suddenly we have things that where that they don't all come as a package and when we need to kind of be a bit more nuanced in the way that we use these words we need to use them in, do, in new ways but then there's a kind of transition period because we don't you know we, we're all arguing about how to use these words all mm. of a sudden because we've got weird mm. edge cases so there's going to be a time when it'll take a time for language to settle back down again so there's a kind of you know you, there's a kind of observer relativeness to this for a bit if you like but then but then there's a kind of consensus needs to emerge right um but um so many things to explore there i mean I, i'm i would love it if this platonic idea of of concepts were possible and um so I, what, I think, what platonic idea? well because well, what we're talking about here is reductionism and the i mean the parable of the blind man and the elephant comes in quite nicely so as chomsky said complex phenomenon beyond our cognitive horizon and as much as we don't want to, we use functions derived from behavior to have some common understanding of yeah, this yeah. thing. But I wasn't being reductionist, was I? Do you think I was being reductionist? Well, well, well no. So you, so you said that the language game converges, and, and um, in some cases we will arrive on, on a common definition. But be, like, you can bring in Hofstadter as well. Well, not a common definition, but a oh. common usage, right? Okay. So, we'll, we'll, come, so okay. that we'll come to use the words you know, in, in, with agreement, right? So yeah. that's what I... And the reason why, I mean, I would... And, and I worried, the reason I would balk at using the word reductionist is because... Uh, and that's why I'm a bit resistant to functionalism as well, to any kind yeah. of ism is because I, I just think that that maybe the way things are, are organized when you take them apart, so, you know, uh, uh, brains, right? When you examine them on the inside, like animal brains, you, you might look at, at how an octopus's brain works, and that might inform whether you think that it suffers, can experiences pain or not. Or we yeah. might break apart, you know, an AI of the system of the future, right? Not, you know, and we may break it apart, and we may look at its functional organisation, and yeah. that all is just is grist to the mill of how our language might change, right? So I'm not I, I'm not subscribing to the fact that consciousness is this or this is that with some big metaphysical capital letters on the is, right? That's really important. Um, so so yeah. the so the organize the functional organization of these of the things which when we study it and look at it is all just part becomes part of the conversation that eventually is going to help us to settle on maybe new ways of talking about these things. I, I think we agree with it with each other. I think the difference is so with the parable of the blind men and the elephant. All of the men around the elephant um, saw something which was part of the truth. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we're describing with the function. So we can all agree on what perception means or, or yeah, what yeah. Um, action means. Yeah, yeah. But 
the thing is, there will be many other functions that will represent a different slice of that cognitive phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's very much true with consciousness, actually, because because lots of people come in with kind of like new ideas and new uh, theories. I mean, you know, uh, mm. uh, Anil Seth, for example. I don't, have you had Anil on your... on your uh, Not yet, Being You. you right? he, he yeah, yeah. Book, so yeah. Anil's written this great book called Being You. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Anil brings in a whole kind of you know, new set of ideas. He's particularly uh, uh, interested in... Uh, you, know, you know the sort of top-down effects of, mm. on on perception, top-down effects on perception. So then he brings in this kind of top-down influence in perception as a big part of things. Mm -hmm. And then there's Graziano has written this book using this about his attention schema uh, theory of, of of consciousness, and um, and that's and, and you know there's a whole set of interesting ideas there. And I think you're absolutely right. I think there's I, I think there's aspects of all of these things all feed into um, uh, you know. All feed into um, uh, the way you know brains and animals uh, work, and all of them feed into the um, you know why they behave the way they do, and why we use those words when we use those words, you know, conscious and aware and so on. Fascinating. Uh, we'll get to your article in a second, but um, as someone who has such a, a diverse and interesting background, who is allowed to ask these philosophical questions? It reminds me. Um, uh, Thomas Metkinson was talking about the arguments between neuroscientists and philosophers about freedom of the will. Yeah. And um, who who gets to decide? Huh. Yeah. Well, what a great question. You know, I mean, so so why should I have any right to speak about any of these things at all? Because I have no formal training in philosophy. Um, so uh, so so who gets to who gets to dis well who gets to to I guess there are two things, right? There's, I guess I guess there's there's in, in in that kind of discussion between the neuroscientists and the and, and the philosophers. So there you there you're not talking about you know the everyday conversation that we're all having as 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 humanity or as English speakers or as Chinese speakers about how we use these these the, these words. So there it's much more kind of confined to the to to different two different schools of, or, mm. or disciplines within academia. So there, I mean, I do think that um, uh, that people who work in AI and in and in neuroscience probably at least should be a bit familiar with the, with the philosophical debates and you know you mentioned Descartes earlier on and you yeah. know you're familiar with, with just that that basic kind of mm. you know sort of uh, uh, stuff that which is like philosophy 101 mm -hmm. for which people should at least be aware of Descartes arguments and then Chalmers and the different kind of perspectives on those sorts of things mm. before they pitch in you know at least, at least yeah. I mean you wouldn't pitch into neuroscience just by making some up some stuff about brains if you hadn't read you know the an introduction to neuroscience and so uh, so I think that the scientists need to um, you know uh, uh, you know, they need to kind of have a, a pass to enter the conversation, which is to have to have got through philosophy one hundred and one. Yeah, it's so true. We, we have the same thing with the um, uh, with the ethics folks, actually, because because we we have a lot of um, fields of expertise, and engineers should learn more about ethics. Yeah, absolutely. But, but when they do have an opinion about ethics, quite quite often it, it it's it's um, you it know, can it, sometimes be a bit yeah. naive, and uh, yeah. and 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 you know, at least you should be familiar with the kind of. Um, but, but that's an interesting and a difficult area in itself because, of course, um, you know, you, uh, as, as a scientist, it's important that you take responsibility as a scientist and, and, the, and the, that you take, you know, some ethical responsibility. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you've only got so much time to become an expert. So, so it's difficult to, at the same time, take ethical responsibility um, uh, and yet, you know, uh, even though perhaps you haven't got the time to kind of uh, read, you know, uh, uh, you know, read up and become an expert on the relevant ethics. So, 
Mm. I mean, perhaps everybody, again, should, you know, get to the entry level, you know, Ethics 101. And indeed, many, many courses teach, you know, ethics uh, these days, many kind of science and computer science. It's part of, you know, of, of any degree these days. So that's a good step, I think. Yeah, there's an interesting analogy between the functionalism that we were speaking about in consciousness. I mean, even in our own research domain, we, we have the function of ethics and we have linguists and we have all sorts of different people. Yeah. And, and, and that is the blind men and the elephant. And, you know, I, I tend uh, to believe that even though the, the views from these diverse folks are inconsistent, diversity is very important. Oh, incredibly important. Intellectual diversity uh, is, you know, every kind of diversity is important and, and intellectual diversity is immensely important. And having these conversations, these interdisciplinary conversations is absolutely, you know, essential. So at least if people are talking to each other, that's a really, really uh, uh, positive thing, I think. Fantastic. Now, we invited Chalmers on our podcast after Ilya Sudskever's tweet. And by the way, Chalmers oh, yeah. took a very functionalist approach to talking about consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, I, I guess after that tweet, everyone in the community started thinking about and talking about consciousness. So yeah. maybe let's just start from that tweet. How, how did you find it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the tweet was, so, so Ilya Sutskavar said, uh, said, it may be that today's large language models are slightly conscious. Um, and, uh, and then, then I rep replied, uh, tweeted back in the same sense that it, that maybe a large field of wheat is slightly pasta. And, uh, and and that, in fact, was it was actually. Um, I, I mean, I've got a fair number of Twitter followers, and but that was the most engaged tweet I've ever mm. sent out. Um, and uh, you know, uh, and it, you know, it got celebrity likes. Hannah Fry retweeted it, and you know, and it was um, uh, my, my kind of uh, comment. Um, and uh, uh, so, so, but that does kind of um, summarize sort of what I think about about what he said at that point. Um, uh, but then, uh, but then I, uh, after tweeting my, my flippant response, I then, I was violating all my own Twitter rules in, in just sending back a, a, a flippant response because I generally don't do that. I, I would rather kind of, uh, you know, be professional and engage professionally. And so I thought it's very mm -hmm. important to follow that on with a, you know, with a little explanation of why, you know, uh, why I thought that it wasn't really appropriate to, to speak about today's large language models in those terms. Yes. Um, and for me, the number one thing is to do with embodiment. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so as I see it, embodiment is a kind of prerequisite for uh, for us being able to use that that word, use words like consciousness and so on. You know, in the way that we do in the normal everyday uh, way, way of talking. So, so mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's only in the presence of something um, uh, that that inhabits our world. And by inhabits, I don't mean just has a physical. You know, like a computer is obviously a physical thing in our world, but inhabits our world means that you know walks around in our or swims or jumps or flies or whatever. But is 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 inhabits the same world as us and interacts with it and and and. Uh, uh, and you know, and and interacts with the objects in it, uh, and with other uh, um, with other uh, creatures like ourselves. So, so that, to my mind, that is that's the that. So, so I so in that paper, Conscious Exotica, I think I use this phrase, trans channeling Wittgenstein, that that only in the context of, of something that um, that exhibits purposeful behaviour do we speak of consciousness, and. The way that's that's phrased, I mean, there is kind of you know, as I said, I was trying to channel Wittgenstein's style of 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 saying things because 
you notice he's saying that it's only, he, he's making, what he's saying is actually, he's talking about the way we use the word. So he's not making mm. a metaphysical claim. This is essential. Mm -hmm. He's saying that this is just, this is, these are the circumstances under which we use this word. So we use this word in the context of fellow creatures, basically. And so, um, so that's the kind of the starting point. So a large, and, and of course, we, of course, we talk to people on the telephone and, and over the internet and, and so on. And we don't, you know, we may not, we, you know, we can't see them or anything. So we, but, but, but we, but we still, we know that there is, um, uh, you know, or we assume we've always been able to assume up to this point that there mm -hmm. is a fellow creature at the other end. And that's the kind of grounding for kind of thinking that way and using, using that word. Now that mm -hmm. is absent in, large language models. So large language models do not inhabit the world that we do. Uh, and um, uh, uh, Now, I mean, we have to caveat that because, of course, it's possible to embed a large language model in a, in a, in a in, you know, we, we always do, you know, embed it in a larger system. It might be a yeah. very simple embedding, it might be just a chatbot, or it might be much more complicated, like it might be, be part of a, a system that uh, enables a robot to kind of move around and interact with the world and take mm -hmm. instructions and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, um, so there was a great, some great work from Google with their Palm Seikan robot, for example, where there's this yes. embedded large language model. So, so, so there you're kind of moving in a in a direction where maybe uh, where these where these words, you know, uh, the, the prerequisites, uh, you know, for for. Well, actually, I want to be careful what I say here. Sorry. So I, because it's so easy to say something that's going to can be misinterpreted, right? Yes. But, but, yeah. but we can't imagine uh, that that we can't imagine that requirement being met for 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 not not it doesn't mean to, it wouldn't be a, a sufficient condition for using those words, but at least it would you'd, you'd meet the necessary conditions, right? But yes. the large language models uh, by themselves do not meet even they're not even candidates. I, yes, I, I I agree, and we there's so many things we can do here because we can we can talk about embodiment in general. I mean, as I understand it, Rodney Brooks kind of um, started the phenomenon of thinking about a representationalist view of artificial intelligence, or, uh, or an embodied rejecting, rejecting a representation. Uh, rejecting, yeah. yeah. So so Rodney Brooks thought that we should use the world as its own best representation, which is absolutely mm. fascinating. Yeah, and and then you, you you maybe you might be thinking about the embodiment view. Um, in a similar mm. style of, of Wittgenstein, so it's a matter of complexity and it's also a matter of encapsulation, which is fascinating. But but also, just to quote your paper, you said, although the language model component of SACAN provides uh, natural language descriptions of low-level actions, it doesn't take into account what the environment actually affords the robot. So there's this whole affordance thing as well. So, so I mean, how do you think about embodiment? So so the way I see it is that the, 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 is that the uh, you know, the one exemplar we have uh, as of you know the end of 2022, of something that we really can describe as in, as, as as intelligent, as generally intelligent, hmm. uh, is is the biological brain, biological yep. brains of of humans, but also of other animals. Mm -hmm. And the biological brain, uh, you know, at its very uh, its very kind of nature is it's there to help a creature to move around in the world to move. Right, it's there to move to help. To guide a, a, a creature and help it move, in order to help it survive and reproduce. That's what brains are for. So that's what, that, from an evolutionary point of view, that's that they 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 developed in order to uh, help a, a creature to move. And they are mm -hmm. so they they and and they are uh, you know they're the bit that comes between the the sensory input and the motor output, 
uh, and insofar as you can cleanly divide these things, which maybe you can't, but I mean, um, so uh, and so that, that's, that, that's their purpose, is to intervene in the sensory motor loop in a way that benefits the organism. Mm -hmm. And everything else is on, built on top of that. So, uh, so, so the capacity to, to recognize objects in our environments and categorize them and uh, the, the ability to kind of manipulate objects in the environment, pick them up and so on. And all of that is there, uh, you know, initially to help the, the, the uh, organism to survive. And, um, uh, and, 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 you know, and that's what um, brains, uh, brains are there for. And then, then when it comes to like, you know uh, the ability to work out how the world works and to to do things like figure out how to gain access to some item of food that's difficult to get hold of, then all kinds of cognitive capabilities might be required to understand how you get inside a uh, uh, you know a, a shell or something to get a, 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 the 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 fruit inside it or something like that complex cognitive abilities uh, that's so that and then you know evolutionary evolution has developed a lot of more and more and more complex cognitive cognition until we get to language and you know we need to interact with each other because that that's all very much a part of it the social social side of it and then language is part of that so as i see it it's all built on top of uh this fundamental fact of our of the embodiment of of the animal and the organism so that's in the biological case so that's the yeah. sort of our starting point yeah so, um, uh, and so that seems to me to be the the most natural way to to understand the very uh, nature of intelligence. Could I frame it? I think I didn't I didn't frame it very well. I mean, Melanie Mitchell recently had a paper out talking about the four misconceptions in AI. And one of them, of course, citing Drew McDermott, was the wishful mnemonics and the yeah, yeah, yeah. anthropomorphization, which, which which you've basically spoken about. But um, but her fourth one was about embodiment, and and she spoke mm. about this in her book as well. And she said that. One of the misconceptions of AI is that people have this notion of a pure intelligence, you know, something right. which works in isolation yes. from the environment. And, and you're talking about social embeddedness and, and embodiment. And I guess my point with the complexity argument is I'm saying that the brain itself doesn't actually do everything. It, it kind of works as part of a bigger system. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, uh, so of course there's, I mean, um, I, I noticed in in one of your previous interviews with Andrew Lampinen, you mentioned the three E's framework or four yeah, E's, four E's, yes. four E's yeah. these days, um, uh, and, as, and of course that's very much part part of it is the is the idea that you know there's the extended mind we use the environment, uh, uh, you know, as 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 a kind of memory, for example, for uh, we 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 deposit things in the environment, writing, you know, is an example, and so on. Um, uh, and then there's um, people talk about morphological computation. I'm sure you've, you're familiar with that. So, no, so, well, what's that? Well, so that's the idea that the very shape of our bodies, uh, you know, is 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 uh, is you know could so 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 sometimes you know the, the aspects of, of intelligence are actually outsourced outsourced into the physical shape of, of of your body. So where you might think about designing a robot, where you where where you put a lot of work into the control aspect of it so that it so that it can kind of walk in this very carefully engineered ways that it's always permanently stable or alternatively you can make a body that is naturally sort of uh stable or maybe naturally unstable and what you do is you kind of uh, rely on the combination of the physics of it constantly falling with uh, uh with a control system yeah. that constantly re restores balance so that so so you know so it, so that's that's a, I mean and this is very much a Brooks type perspective and and people picked up on Brooks's 
ideas and extended them in the, in this sort of way. So I think that's I think that's a very natural uh, way of thinking. But in in a way that this gets to the to the complexity argument because I guess what I'm saying is that. Um, life is much more brittle than anyone realizes you were just pointed to some sources of brittleness that most people never would have thought of mm, which mm. is which is fascinating so i think there's a very important relationship between embodiment and language uh, and this also brings us back to wittgenstein as well mm. so um uh, so for us as humans language is inherently an embodied phenomenon it's it, it's it's something that is uh, uh it's a social practice uh, something that take that that is a phenomenon that um, uh, occurs in the context of other language users who inhabit the same world as we do, and where we have kind of like joint activities. We're triangulating on the same world, and we're we're acting on the same world together, and that's the that's what we're talking about when we use mm. language. So there's this uh, so that that that's an inherently kind of Wittgensteinian view of language. I mean, and I think it's deeply profoundly correct view of of language that's that's what that's what language is there for us is so that we can talk about the same things together so that we can our collective activity is is um you know is 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 organized um to some extent thanks to language so that's uh, so i think that's a really important perspective uh, on language is Wittgensteinian perspective mm-hmm. and and embodiment is at the heart of it embodiment and inhabiting the same world uh, as our other language users um, and you know that's the way we learn language. We learn language um, by being around other language users, like our parents and carers and 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 peers, uh, and and that's again a very important aspect of a, of, the, of the nature of human language. Now, large language models um, they learn language in a very different way. Indeed, they do not inhabit the same world as us. They do not kind of sense the world in the way that we do they don't learn language from uh, from other language users from their peers in the way that we do um, but rather they you know well we know how large language models work there's trained on a very very large corpus of textual of textual data mm. so an enormous corpus of textual data so bigger than any human is likely to encounter you know you know by the time they become a proficient language user at a, at a, at a, at a young age um, and what they're trained to do is is um, is not to kind of uh, uh, engage in activities with other language users, but to predict what the next, you know, what the next token is going to be, um, which is a very, very different sort of thing. So they're very, very different sorts of things, and the and the role of embodiment is really, really important in this difference. I think. Yes, um, absolutely. When I spoke with Andrew Lampinen, um, he's really, really interested in the grounding problems. I mean, w- yeah. would you mind just speaking about that a little bit before we go into your paper? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, of course, this goes goes back to uh, a, a great paper by Stephen Harned back in, I think, 1999 or 1998. So, yeah, the one and only. Yeah, the yeah. one and only uh, on the, the symbol grounding problem, it was called. And, uh, and, and you know, he does um, argue broadly that um uh, that sim- symbols in 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 ai systems um the kinds of ai systems he was thinking about at the time were kind of you know sort of expert systems say or something like that and the symbols there are not grounded they're provided by the human programmers and yeah. they've just sort of t- typed in whereas for us for us the words we use those symbols are are grounded in uh, in our activity in the world so that when we use the word dog um, that's because we've seen dogs and we've talked about dogs with other people who've also seen dogs and we've seen dogs in lots of different circumstances and we've also seen 
cats and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and and dog bowls and bones and many other things that all kind of contextualize that. But all of that 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 is kind of grounded in the real world in, in our percep- and in our perception of the things in, in question. So that so that's this so that's what sort of is meant by grounding. Or that at least that's the original meaning of the word grounding from Stephen Harned's paper. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important um, concept because uh, because uh, you know, in, a, in an important sense, large language models, the symbols that are used in large language models, are not really grounded in that kind of way. Now, this, you know, I should be absolutely clear that large language models are immensely powerful and immensely useful, and 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 so that you know, so but it's interesting that to what to what extent the lack of grounding here that we have in today's large language models, you know, might uh, affect uh, how good they are. So, um, so they, so they are prone to kind of, you know, uh, hallucinating and and, yes. and and confabulating and uh, and if you look at um, multimodal language models that, that maybe we'll talk about an image that you present to them, uh, then you know they, you can have a very interesting conversation. But sometimes they'll go off piste and start talking about things that are not in the image at all, and as if they are, and um, uh, uh, that's sort of because due to a kind of uh, I would say a lack of grounding. So that so the the words are not kind of grounded in the images in 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 quite the way that we would like. So that's it's an important topic of research, I think. Yes, indeed. And although some people do believe there's this uh, magical word called emergence, and possibly some emergence symbol grounding might be possible. Maybe, maybe should we just put that to bed before we introduce your? Yeah, your sure. Paper well, uh, well, I, I mean, emergence is is I, I think is uh, is a really important concept, and I yes, uh, and I think uh, you know we do see a, a tremendous amount of of uh, very powerful emergence. I think in today's large large language models, so 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 uh, you know even though the the they're, so, so they're basically trained to do next word prediction. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, I, to be clear, I suppose I should have made this maybe a bit clearer in the paper, but of course it's not always next word prediction because the different models learn to actually uh, you know, predict what's in the middle of a, of a sequence rather yes. than kind of... But, yeah. but generally, you know, they're, they're interested in... in, 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 in let, let's take the next word prediction case as canonical. Yes. So, yeah. so, they're, so, so, they're, so they're trained to just to do next word prediction. Now, mm. the astonishing thing mm. is, as I think GPT-3 showed us, yeah. um, is, that, is that just that capability, if it's sufficiently powerful, can be used to do all sorts of extraordinary things. Because uh, if you provide uh, you know, the, uh, a prompt that describes you know, describe some kind of complicated thing, uh, you know, situation like, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I need to um, uh, tile my floor and my floor is shaped like an L and it's 20 meters long and three meters, well, you know, you start to describe this thing, you know, and each each tile is, is, is 20 centimeters square, how many tiles will I need? And, and some large language model will come back and tell you, oh, you need 426 tiles, whatever, and it's correct, right? Yes. Well, this is astonishing because it was only tra- trained to do next word prediction. And so there's a kind of emergent capability there. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which it still is just doing next word prediction because in the vast and immensely complex distribution of tokens in human text that's, that's, that, that, that's out there, then the correct answer is actually the thing that's most likely to come up. And that's, the, uh, but it's got to discover a mechanism for producing that, right? And so that is where the emergence comes in. And it, I think that the, you know, the, these 
capacities are astonishing. The fact that they that it can discover mechanisms, you know, uh, emergently that will do that sort of thing. Yes, and maybe I shouldn't have used the word magic with it with emergence. I, I'm a huge fan of emergence, and and as you say, the the, the decoders trained to predict the next token or the denoising autoencoders to to um, let's say fill in the gaps in in the middle and. Uh, I guess there are different ways of thinking about emergence. So there's weak emergence, which might be thought as um, computational irreducibility or a, a surprising macroscopic change or strong emergence when it's not directly deducible from truths in the lower level domain. You know, lots yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. Different but, senses of it, yeah. Exactly. But I guess my point is that remarkably, it's trained on something quite trivial. Mm. So all of this is about convention, right? All of right. this is about what's what what is the what is a good way to use words, right? So I don't so I don't think uh, you know I'm not making metaphysical claims about 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 these things. So it's all yeah. about what you know when is it appropriate to use words uh, to use certain words and and because when when this becomes problematic is when they're philosophically difficult words like believes and thinks and so on. Um, uh, now, when it comes to reasoning, uh, so so I, I do think that we I do think it's not unreasonable to 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 use that term to describe what some of the, the these models do today, and that's partly because of the content neutrality of of uh, of, of reasoning. So so uh, so so a lot of the argument um, or a lot of the discussion in the paper comes back to this sort of whole embodiment thing, really, um, and and I'm 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 saying well, you know. In in the kind of like ordinary way we use the word believes, well, it gets it gets complicated because we do use the word believes uh, in this intentional stance way to, to to talk about ordinary everyday things. We say, oh my my you know my my uh, car clock thinks that it's uh, British summertime, you know, ah oh, you know, and because we and then but then you say then you, you, somebody says to you, what you, you what you mean your your car clock can think? You say no. Obviously, I didn't mean that it can think. It's just a turn of phrase, you know. But when we when we get to these large language models, and we start to use the words like thinks and and believes and so on, because they're so powerful, mm. it starts to get a bit ambiguous. And you're and you're and you know when, and some people say, well, actually, I really did mean that it can think or that it believes. So I'm so I'm I'm interested in this when things get difficult in this respect, and. Um, could could you tease apart though? What, so you resist anthropomorphic language in terms of belief, knowledge, understanding, self, or even consciousness. Yeah. But less so with reasoning. And I, my intuition is that reasoning rather depends on those things that I just said before. Well, I um, so I think it doesn't because. Um, uh, but but this is but perhaps this is just uh, maybe in a kind of formal logic sense because because reason because logic is content neutral. So if I mm. tell you that. Every... Could you just explain what yes. you mean by that? Okay, yeah. so um, so Lewis Carroll has all these wonderful kind of like nonsense syllogisms, right? Where he where he, um, uh, you know he says, oh, if all elephants um, like custard, and you know Jonathan is an elephant, then, ele then Jonathan likes custard, and uh, you know all kinds of things like that, and, and it's all sort of nonsense. And he has this big complex, complicated ones. And similarly, I could tell you that uh, all all uh, sprogforths are plingy. And uh, and Juliet is a sprogforth, therefore Juliet yeah. is is uh, splingy, right? And I've no idea what any of those things mean, but the the but it's because it because it, it the, for the pure form of the reasoning, you don't have to know what they mean. It's just about the the, the logic. So 
Um, so in that sense, you know, um, uh, it just in the way that a theorem prover can do logic, then mm. so can a large language model do logic. So in that sense, I think large, it is reasonable to use the word reasoning in that logical mm. sense in the context of large language models. So I don't think that's a problem. Of course, we may think that they do it badly or they do it well, or you know, that's a whole other thing, right? But, but at least the word is potentially applicable, right? Yes. Now, belief, uh, I think, you know, I think at the moment is a, is a, uh, is a different kettle of fish because to really uh, have a hold a belief, it's it, it it's not content neutral, right? So if you if I believe to use the example in my in, in my paper, if I believe that uh, Burundi is to the south of, of of Rwanda, well, whether that is the case or not, it does depend upon facts that are out there in the world. And mm. then to to really uh, uh, have a belief, at least you've got to be able to. Uh, somehow try and kind of justify justify yeah. those facts or at least and, and you've got to be at least built in such a way that you can you know interact with the external world and, and do that sort of thing right yeah. and and verify that something is true or false or do an experiment or you know or, or ask someone or you know you've got to go outside yourself right we go outside of ourselves mm -hmm. and and uh, in order to establish whether something a belief is true or not and so you know you've got to at least be capable of doing that whereas large language model, the bare bones large language model, is not capable of doing that at all, right? Now, you can embed it in a larger system. This is a really important distinction that I try and make over and again in the paper. I talk about the bare bones large language model. So you can take the, so, so any, whenever a large language model is used, it's not the bare bones large language model, which just does sequence prediction, but it's embedded in a larger system. When we embed it in a larger system, well, that larger system maybe could consult Wikipedia. Maybe it could be part of a robot that goes and investigates the world. So that's a whole other thing. But then you have to look at each case in point and 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 ask yourself whether it's a whether, you know, whether we really want to use that word in it in, in anger, you know, as in in its full sense rather than just in the intentional stance sense of a kind of figure of speech. So and so in the case of of, of like chatbots, for example, um, today's chatbots not really appropriate. I would say we're not using the word in the way that we, in the full blown sense that we use it when we talk about each other. Fascinating. Okay, well, let's get on to intentional stance. So you you said that it's a useful way of thinking about artificial intelligence, allowing us to view computer programs as intelligent agents even though they may lack the same kind of understanding as a human. And you cited the case of Bob and Bot. Uh, the, the word no was used differently in the two cases. In the word of Bob, it was used in the traditional sense. For Bot, it was used in the metaphorical sense. So it kind of like, it's just distinguishing what it, what it means uh, to know, you know, for, for, yeah. for humans and, and, and for machines. So I think it's uh, it's useful to think about something like Wikipedia. So, um, so we might ask the question, does Wikipedia know that Argentina has won the 2022 World Cup? Mm. And just immediately after the event, you know, it probably doesn't, it's not recorded in Wikipedia, and somebody might say, oh, Wikipedia doesn't know yet that that, that Argentina have won. And so when we use the, uh, a word like that, you know, nobody's going to kind of say to them, uh, say to somebody who uses that word, um, uh, hey, you know, I don't think you should use the word knows there, and, you know, that, you know, you should be a bit more sort of sensible. I mean, it's, it's fine to kind of use, I think, these kinds of uh, words in this ordinary, everyday sense. And we do that all the time. And that sort of, um, uh, and particularly, particularly in the case of computers, that's adopting what Dan Dennett calls the intentional stance. Mm. So we're we're so we're we're interpreting something as 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 having beliefs uh, 
desires and intentions um, uh, because it's a kind of convenient shorthand. And especially if you've got something that's a bit more complicated, like say your car's sat nav or something, or your your you know your sat nav on your on your phone, then it sort of makes makes sense to use those words. It's a, it is a convenient shorthand, and it helps us to kind of um, talk about them, right? And without getting overly complicated and without knowing the underlying mechanisms. But there's an important sense in which we don't mean it literally. So, you, you know, in the case of Wikipedia, you can't, you couldn't go up to Wikipedia and pat it on the shoulder and say, hey, Argentina have won, and say, no way, you know, right, I want a beer, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh, and, 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 uh, all, and all the things that, that go with us as humans actually knowing things, and uh, it's just a turn of phrase. Now, things get sort of interesting with large language models and with large language model-based systems and the kinds of things that we're starting to see in, in the world because mm. we're starting to get into this kind of blurry territory where it, where we're blurring between the intentional stance mm. and and you know meaning the, meaning it literally and this is where we need to be really really kind of careful I think so at what point does do things shade over into where it's legitimate to use that word uh, you know uh, literally? in uh, in the context of something that we've built you know i i don't think we're at that point yet and and we need to be very careful about um about uh using the word as if we were using it literally uh you know that's the sort of anthropomorphization because the problem is that we can then um impute capacities to the thing and 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 or even you know empathy say that yes. that, that just isn't there Yes, and I, I suppose we could tease apart knowledge, so a justified true belief from knows, because knows that it brings all this baggage of intentionality and agency and anthropomorphization. But you had Chomsky. You've had Chomsky on. Uh, <laughs> well, I could tell you a story about that. I mean, um, the, the recording messed up. So when we were interviewing him, we were only getting bits and pieces, and we had to uh. deep fake him. We had to we had to regenerate uh, the interview. Oh, really? And he was saying in the entire interview how much he hated deep learning and how useless it was. And then... Um, we we used deep learning to rescue his interview, and he you gave literally us. His, deep, you yeah. Literally did that. Yeah. Did you tell him? Yeah, and he gave us his permission to publish it. That is wonderful. Uh, so it's quite ironic. But yeah. no, he, he always says it. It's um, wonderful for engineering, but not a contribution to science. Yes, <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, he said uh, I like bulldozers too. They're good for clearing the snow, yeah, but they're yeah. not a contribution to science. So, so who else have you? Ha I mean, you've had a lot of people on. I listened to Andrew's one, by the way. It's uh, Andrew Lampinen. Yes, um, he, he's great. So he's great. Uh, so yeah. Andrew is somebody I, I do work with quite closely. Oh, wonderful. Um, so uh, it was interesting listening to, to him because Andrew had quite a big influence on this paper, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and I mean, you know, and but I think I might have had a bit of influence on him as well, to listening to I think that, so. Because that interview was just after he'd read, and he read my paper and gave me lots of comments. And we right. had a lot of discussion about it. And uh, and that interview, uh, looking at the recording date, was was sort of just after this, and um, and it's it's interesting. I mean, he was very circumspect in in, in some of the things he said. Yeah, it was very interesting because he, uh, I I think the influence has maybe gone both ways. <laughs> yes, uh, which is which is nice. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I I can't be sure I, of that. But I I think there's a huge similarity. Yeah, I was thinking that actually just when you were speaking. But it's funny because you know because we've spent a lot of time arguing with each other about it. And, you know, I, and really? I, I often feel like we're, we're coming from very different perspectives on, on, on this. But in fact, you know, I think there's, there's convergence, really. What are your areas of disagreement? Um, well, you see, I, I would have thought 
that Andrew would have been more on the side of, you know, we can do things without embodiment and without grounding or, 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 to, or to kind of take grounding in a, in a, uh, in a more liberal sense. Um, because cause some people would take, you know, talk about grounding, so they say, well, you know, the, the large language models, they are grounded. Prompt engineering is yes. the process of uh, using prompt prefixes to allow LLMs to understand better. Um, you know, so the, the context and the purpose of a conversation in order to generate more appropriate responses. What do you think is going on with prompt engineering? Yeah, well, yeah, so, so you, you let's probably let slip a phrase there. It's a, the process of allowing the models to understand better is what you're better. Of course, I don't think... Guilty as charged. I don't think, I don't think that's the right way of, of characterising it as, uh, uh, at all. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, I mean, I think it's, it, the whole thing of prompt engineering is, is utterly fascinating. And, and, it, and it's, it's something that's entered our world as AI researchers very prominently just in the last two years. And it's amazing. I, 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 um, of course, we have prompt engineering in the context of large language models. We also have, have prompt engineering in the context of of you know the generative um, uh, you know, image models as well like yes. Dali and so on, and, um, uh, and 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 that's really fascinating as well. How how by by uh, you know engineering the prompt to be just the right sort of thing, you can coax the the model into doing something which you know you might not otherwise do. Mm. And it and it's a and it's a great example of how alien these things are because if you were giving a human being the same instructions, then you wouldn't necessarily do. Quite what you do with uh, with with either an LLM or or an image uh, model in order to get it to do the thing that you want it to do. You have to kind of you have to kind of get into the zone with these models and yeah. and, and, and and figure out kind of what strange incantations are going to make it do the things that you want it to do. Now, I think an interesting thing is that that we may be looking at a moment of a, a very short moments in the history of the field where prompt engineering is relevant because hmm. uh, if 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 language models become good enough, then then you know we we're not going to need to talk to them in, in this weird way. You know, engineer the prompt to get them to do what we want them to do. It's going to be you know it's going to be a lot easier. But anyway, so maybe that will be the case. I mean, that makes a lot of sense that that will be the case as, as they get better. But at the moment, um, you know, you, you 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 can use a strange incantation like think in steps, and hmm. uh, and suddenly the large language model will will. Be much more effective on reasoning problems than it was if you didn't use the incantation thinking steps. So that's really fascinating. So what's going on there? Well, I mean, I think what's going on there is that, I mean, we have to again bear in mind that what the model is really trained to do is is next word, uh, next word prediction. But we have to remember that it's doing next word prediction in this unimaginably mm. complex distribution. So. And and it's and it's it's not just we have to remember that it's not just the distribution of what a, a single human would, you know, the distribution of the sequence of, of words that a single human will come out with, but of all the sort of text of of, of you know millions of humans, uh, uh, you know, on on the internet, plus actually a load of other stuff like code and things which you know we don't come out with in ordinary everyday language. Well, people do at DeepMind a bit, but you know that's DeepMind. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so, so it's it's this unimaginably complex distribution, and so I think what's happening um, uh, with 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 prompt engineering is that you're you're sort of, you know, you're kind of channeling it into some portion of the distribution. So you're you're, you're queuing it up, to, you know, in, in, with 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 a with a with a prompt, and you're you're 
your, this kind of context is putting it into some portion of this distribution, and that is what's going to uh, enable it to do something different than it than it, than it would have done if you had a different set of words, and, and, and that would have put it in a different part of the distribution. So you're kind of finding the bit of this unimaginably complex distribution, you're finding the bit of it that you want to then concentrate on. Yeah, so in, intuitively I agree, because I think there's two ways of looking at this. So in, I agree with you that they are statistical language models. I'm, I'm also a fan of the spline theory of neural networks, which is this idea that you just kind of um, tessellate the ambient space into these little um, affine polyhedra, and it's a little bit like a locality-sensitive hashing table. But that's quite, it's a quite a simple way of looking at it because you were talking about emergence before. And emergence is all about this paradigmatic surprise, a bit like the mind-body dualism, if you like. There's something that happens up here which is paradigmatically completely different to what happens down there. Mm. So on the one hand, we're kind of saying, oh, they're just simple uh, interpolators or statistical models. Mm. But on the other hand, they really are doing something remarkable up here. Mm. So, so yeah, which yeah. is it? Uh, which is it? Well, I mean, it's both, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, so, 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 you know, if we want to understand uh, these models in a in a in a more scientific way, which which we surely do, you know, we, even if we're not even if we're not engineering them in an, in an old fashioned sense of engineering them, but 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 rather they kind of uh, you know emerge from the from the learning process, but we still want to reverse engineer them to try and get as great as as as, as comprehensive. A scientific understanding of these things as, as possible. Mm. So, so we want to understand at all these levels, right? We, of course, uh, the foundation of that understanding is that we need to understand the actual mechanisms that we've programmed in there, right? So, though, you know, so you that's essential. You want to, you, you know, if you want to really understand these things, you've got to understand uh, transformer architectures, the different kinds of transformer architectures you, that you've got, the, you know, what happens when you've used kind of different parameter settings, whether it's sparse or dense, whether it's a decoder-only architecture, or how you're doing the tokenization, how you're doing the embedding. I mean, all of these things are essential to understanding, you know, and that's all at the absolutely at the engineering level. So you want to understand all of that. But then we can do a whole load of reverse engineering, at, you know, at another level, and do the sort of thing that the people at Anthropic AI have done, for example, um, with uh, uh, with these induction heads and, mm -hmm. and 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 understanding in terms of uh, uh, transformers in terms of residual streams and induction heads, which I think is fabulous work. So that kind of thing is is looking. It's still at quite a low level, but it's kind of the next level up, uh, and explaining a little bit about how these things work and work along those lines. I think is like really uh, essential. And then the more complex these things are, the, the you know the the, hard, the the more we need to kind of ascend these levels of understanding and 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 uh, um, uh, and, and you know and I, and I hope that we can. But I mean, there's no one that is the right one. It's it, you, you want to understand that things at all levels. Yeah, different levels of, of description. Um, you said something before which really interested me. You, you said when the language models get good enough, mm. um, maybe we won't need the prompts anymore. And and I'd I'd love to explore that duality. Because um, it's a similar duality to how we talk about um, embodiment. You know, you can think of the language model being embodied in the prompt in, in some sense. So maybe we'll never get rid of the prompt. But just to think about these prompts, I think about them as a new type of program interpreter. Mm. And there are some remarkable examples of scratch pad and chain of thought and even algorithmic prompting for getting insane extrapolative performance on lots of, you know, standard reasoning tasks. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these, these models are, are not 
Turing machines, they're finite state automatists, so there, there are limits to what we can do. But I guess what I'm saying is the, the prompt seems like it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, so I, I, I think that I don't think the prompt is going to go away, but I think that the uh, you know, and I, who knows, right? But 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 I think that prompt engineering as a whole kind of thing in itself, you know, yeah. may it may not be you know people talk about that as being a kind of a whole new job description, you know, prompt engineer, and that so that that as a as a whole new job description, I'm not quite sure how long exactly that will last because uh, because prompt, prompting may be just you know interacting with a thing in a much more natural language way in the way we would with another person right so you know i don't i don't uh, when i uh, when i i don't have to kind of think of some peculiar incantation in order to uh, uh you know in order to get uh you know my colleagues to kind of uh help me on on something or to you know uh uh to cook a meal together with somebody we i've just we just use our natural kind of uh, forms of communication I mean, of course of course it does involve you know, discussion and negotiation, but it's in this. It's just the same as we use with other humans, right? So, so, I th so it may be that 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 rather it, than it being a peculiar thing in itself, with all these funny phrases that just work for peculiar eccentric reasons, that it may be much more natural. Amazing, Professor Shanahan. Thank you so much for thank joining you us very today. Much, uh, indeed, yeah. and thank you for the invitation. It's been lots of fun. Absolute honour. Absolute honour. Right.